Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm, my name is Tim Mitra, I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined by Aaron Bay in Whitby, Ontario. Very chilly here. Good evening. And I'm joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And I'm also joined by Mark Rubin hey everybody. in San Jose, California. There you go. Okay, so we have some follow-up again this week, and I guess we want to jump into, um, I think, um, uh, Jaime discovered an article on that was put up, I'm going to paraphrase it, it was technical interviews are BS, um, and I think we all kind of agree with that, but do you guys want to have something to say about that article, now that we've read it? It's true. Our uh, technical interviews are BS. Um, the author is actually coming at this article, uh, this this topic from um, a gender bias perspective, mm-hmm. um, but it it really speaks true, I think, to the whole problem with technical interviews and how it puts you on the spot um, and doesn't really test you uh, for the skills that you really need when you're actually in the job. And I think uh, that really underlines what we talked about last week. So uh, the author is anonymous, uh, mm-hmm. but I believe it is a woman, mm-hmm. uh, just given the perspective that it's written from, uh, and goes through sort of the situations that she has encountered in, it seems very often in the case that she's pointing out that she's doing technical interviews at a whiteboard. Hmm. And uh, I don't know that, in my experience anyway, I've never had to do that. But, uh, you know, having done technical interviews over the phone, it's usually been in a code editor of some kind. But it seems to matter that it be on a whiteboard in this case. Uh, uh, regardless, the, the, the problem here is that you've got a scenario where you've got a group of technical interviewers sort of looking down on you from above expecting you to know the answers and it is a very artificial situation and does not reflect or cannot adequately test the skills of the interviewee and uh and i think that's something that we can all agree on it's uh, something that we kind of pointed out last week i really liked at the end um you know the section of hers there are better ways to interview yeah i did too yeah um because, you know, let's be constructive, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Why are we taking everybody down when we can bring each other up? And this is the way to do it. This is great. Uh, give the candidate an existing piece of code and ask them to review it. And that's just a great idea, I think. Um, yeah. Talk about code. It's not necessarily your code. It's just code. Um, and it kind of gets you comfortable in talking about problems with code. Um, which sort of leads into the, her second suggestion of having a conversational technical interview. Just asking questions and... Um, you know, kind of getting information about what you know out of it and just getting you talking, really. That's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like that this article uh, laid it all out. Um, and, you know, her, her point, and, you know, I'm, I believe it's valid because God knows there's too few women in our industry, um, mm-hmm. you know, really points out that, the, that this, this sort of technique would help get more women into the field. But I think it would be better for everyone. Yeah, and and I think that, you know, you and I in particular come from the, you know, when we look at the requirements, you know, document on any kind of job interview or job posting, it's, you know, have a computer, you know, computer science degree or equivalent. You and I are the or equivalent group. And, um, you know, I think that we bring more to the the table in terms of life experience and and whole round working experience, different kind of jobs that we've had that, that add more to our ability to, to be useful to a company other than whether or not, you know, we can, you know, parse code or whatever. I do, I do like the idea of, of you know, I, I would rather be presented with an app and say, what is this app doing? And then be able to tell somebody that because, you know, um, it seems odd to me that I can spend, you know, two weeks teaching people how to do iOS coding and, and uh, have them actually be producing apps independently at the end of it, but yet I can't get a job as a coder. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. That's a tough world. Yeah, it's a tough, tough world. And guys, you guys with the computer science degrees, what do you have to say? (laughs) They're like, you guys are idiots. (laughs) Well, I don't have a computer science degree. (laughs) Yeah, okay, so uh, Mr. PhD guy. Yeah, but I do have a a, a strong technical background. So, I don't know, there's, I guess it kind of comes down to, uh, are they looking for someone, you know, with sort of an engineering mindset versus Mm -hmm. not, whatever that means? And whether that's a good thing or not, I, I don't know. Um, 
but but it does seem to be that's that's the kind of thing they test. I mean, not everyone is is good at talking about stuff, right? Especially right. engineers, right. right? Some engineers, right. especially in this business, exactly. Yeah. Like, I I find it hard to to think that you know that the geeks of the world are the ones that are going to be able to go up there and sell themselves to uh, an employer, you know? Exactly. And, and I think that's probably the the basis for for the existence of these technical interviews is that it, it's trying to be data-driven. It's trying to, uh, you know, in theory, give everyone the same input and see what the output is. And it doesn't depend on how well you can talk or, or how good yeah. you are at selling yourself. Um, so I think the, the idea is comes from a good place uh although in, in practice it, it's it's most of the time it's it's not uh implemented very well uh, like yeah, many well, things. It's, trying, it's trying to quantify something like can you actually flip the burger that you're cooking at the time that you're doing it you know like right it, it kind of shows that skill i mean like that's the the innate skill of being able to, to write code is writing code or right at least understanding what's going on but you know i think that um, my point is that, you know, there's, again, I'm, you know, as, as I said, I've, I've learned through going to these technical interviews that I'm not applying for those types of jobs because that's not the role I want to do anyway. Right. 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 Um, I'm not strictly a coder. I'd, I'd rather be, you know, the person architecting the job. I think I do have an engineering mind. In fact, I did start out in engineering, but I changed to fine arts, you know, in midstream, but, um, but I still have that sort of, you know, scientific curiosity and educate you know, engineering type of, uh, bent to me, but uh, but you know, I didn't actually f- finish the path. But right. um, yeah, I, anyways, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, uh, I I love what you had to say about your education, actually, because it mirrors yeah. my experience so well. Um, I just I did very poorly in science and math in mm. in, in high school, so right. I didn't pursue it in university. But I've always been so interested in that sort of thing. But I was never able to pursue it because I wasn't smart enough. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of funny that I went all through school and I did English and in comparative literature. That's my degree, you know, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now. But it's it's such an area of fascination that I had to teach it to myself. And yeah. Yeah, and I can add to that because I mean, conversely to that, what you just said, I mean, I was very strong in science and and, uh, and math, but I was also very strong in art, right? And um, uh, so you know, I, but the thing was, I didn't I didn't pursue the engineering thing. I went into fine arts, and then I thought, you know, after thir- third year, I had to pick up a couple of electives, and I thought, oh, I'll go I'll go do a math, and I had to do a test to see what you know what kind of math skills I had, and I had lost everything in two years. Right. Like, you know, I was doing calculus and all, algebra and all that kind of stuff at the, at the highest level you could in high school. But but after two years, I, I hadn't even used those skills at all. And yet I'm a sculptor and a welder and, you know, I can and I can, you know, measure things and I've, you know, can build houses and do construction and all that kind of stuff. I know how to, you know, all the rules about it, all that kind of stuff. And yet, um, you know, anyway, my point is that that, you know, building things is not is more than just whether you can, you know, tell the difference between a C variable and, a, and an objective variable, you know? Anyway, Jaime, you've been quiet. Yeah, so I do have a degree in computer science. Um, okay. And I, we won't hold that against you. <laughs> and I, or, the, or the fact that you're male either. Right, right. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, like the last time in, in, in that episode, I, I did mention like I'm, I'm not real keen on the traditional computer science-y kind of questions that that this article talks about as well where it's like hey you know reverse a string in a linked list or find all possible permutations like that it's not something you generally are going to have to do and certainly not on the spot without any prep work right like Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. don't generally have any time ahead you know ahead of time to understand what the problem is before the okay now while i'm staring at you and the clock is ticking now come up with a solution in this high pressure situation. Like I'm, I'm not happy with that. This um, article is not happy with that. And I, I think their approach for what they, they came up with for what could be alternatives seem pretty reasonable to me. Um, when I do interviews and having done a few of them lately as uh, mm-hmm. the interviewer, um, I'm not super interested in the right or wrong answer kind of questions. And, that, and that's what these ones tend to be, right? Like there's mm-hmm. pretty much a defined way that they're they're looking for an answer. I'm more interested in asking questions where there is no clear answer because that's what I deal with all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested in, can this person deal with 
areas where there are no clear, you know, clear cut black and white. Yes, this is absolutely the way to go because there's mm-hmm. probably some give and take in the real world. Yeah, and I mean, it's like one of the things I, I do in the middle of the courses and, and early enough in the in the Objective C and iOS and Swift courses is I take people, I take my students over to the Apple documentation and I, you know, try to teach them how to read that, you know, how to find out, you know, what the methods are, find, you know, find a, find a delegate protocol like table view control or whatever, and then see what the requirement required, uh, you know, uh, methods are that you have to implement. That to me is, is an understanding of how to build an app. You know, uh, if you can, if you can muddle through the, you know, find it, you need to get from a point A to point B. Well, how do I get to, how do I get to point B? What are the tools I need to do? What are the methods I need to implement? You know, what can I, you know, what kind of, where can I find the code to get the, the answer done? That's what, for me, building apps is all about all day long, right? So. Right. And didn't Steve Jobs say something about being at the intersection of technology and liberal arts? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that kind of explains me, but, you know, but nobody ever asks me, you know, what, what, uh, what the, the importance of Demoiselle d'Avignon by Pablo Picasso is, you know? And I can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, okay, so um, we also have another follow-up item on on uh, the uh, Sapphire uh, company. Um, I'm trying to remember the GT name. GT Advanced. Now. GT Advanced. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, uh, Jaime, again, you posted this, but I think everybody has sort of an opinion on it. Anybody everybody would... has an opinion. Well, this actually, I posted this. Sorry, for Aaron the record. always has an opinion. Okay, yeah, here we go. I have an opinion, <laughs> but uh, you know, I just want to clarify that I totally posted that. Oh, AV. Oh, that's yeah. what AV stands for. I thought yeah. it was audiovisual. Sorry. Sorry. Well, I am a very audiovisual kind of guy, but uh, that's not at all what that means. So just to clarify here, we talked last week about GT Advanced and how they declared bankruptcy in order to escape the deal from Apple, uh, where they were unable to produce the Sapphire pools needed to produce hundreds or maybe just tens of millions of phones and their screens. So this um this article from the guardian goes a little in depth into the deal that uh, GT Advance and Apple struck together and makes our points very well uh you know some of the things that we said last week were speculation about how Apple invests in its suppliers to produce the components for its hardware and GT Advance uh, is just the latest example of that and this article goes into some detail showing how bad a deal the GT made with Apple it is so much in Apple's favor, talking about the penalties and the order requirements, the price that Apple will pay for the for the Sapphire, all of it uh, very much in favor of Apple. And so um, it seems to me, looking through this article, that I think you could assign blame on both parties. You know, GT Advanced made a bad deal. They agreed to the terms, and you can't dispute that. Um, but Apple was really... Uh, not in it for them at all. Um, I think if they had been more cooperative from the sounds of things, uh, things may have worked out more in everyone's favor. And who knows, we may have had more Sapphire than uh, than Glass right now. Uh, so it's just a very interesting article, and it kind of highlights the, the danger, I guess, of, of being an Apple supplier because they have so much volume that you can either become an insanely rich person or you could be crushed under their heel. Well, yeah, I mean, I think obviously if you're gonna, if you're gonna, you know, like they say, if you're gonna bark with the big dogs, you know. Um, but the so when you say Apple wasn't in it for them, do you mean Apple wasn't helping them, or or Apple it, it's immaterial that Apple wasn't going to help them? Or well, it's, it seems that they they could have been a little more friendly to GT Advanced in order to uh, assure their success, but. They, they dictated a lot of terms in the, the running of the factory, for example, that um, ended up backfiring on everyone. Um, they, they talk about uh, yield, um, not having the uh, power at the plant in time. Apple wasn't, was responsible for that. Uh, so they, they didn't have as much time to produce the Sapphire as they had expected and had agreed to. Uh, there was Apple management getting involved. And uh, it it was just really hard for them to produce under the conditions that Apple was stating. At the same time, you know, Apple's been doing this forever, and and it's no secret. I mean, I I worked for a company that was a, an Apple supplier, um, a couple of different companies that have done that. And one one uh, more than fifteen years ago, actually had a a one line mention in the uh, 
Steve Jobs biography as an interaction with the company. But but anyway, things were rough back then. You know, Apple would would have their demands and and you either either met them or you're free to walk away and there's people lining up at the door to to get in to take your place. So if they if if GT Advance wasn't aware that that's what Apple was like, then they probably shouldn't have been in that business to start with. This is, this is why I say like there's blame on both sides. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, you know, we know what Apple's like. We've heard what Apple's like. Uh, you know, but this Steve Jobs isn't in here anymore, right? Right. It's right. you know, this is supposed to be the Tim Cook era. You know, where things are supposed to be a little more cool, uh, not 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 so crazy like Steve Jobs, very mercurial and treats his suppliers the same way. Um, there's one artic- uh, paragraph from this article that sort of outlines what Apple has done. Uh, Squiller, he's one of the uh, the chief operating officer at GT Advanced. He complained that Apple wouldn't let GT Advanced staff choose the tools for working the bulls, and that nearly a third of the staff's time was spent interacting with a delegation from Apple from its supply chain, manufacturing, and quality engineering team. So um, I don't know if you can predict that sort of thing going into a deal, but it seems that working with Apple comes with more overhead than they had anticipated. Let's just put it that way. Right. And, and, and that speaks to a whole lot of different levels of working with Apple. I mean, that they're, they're not the they're not going to fully disclose how things work, and, and you're always dealing with somebody in the middle of, of the, 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 the wheel, probably closer to the hub than the, than the center. Um and you're always going to be kept in the dark because they're kept in the dark too, right? I mean, they've got they've got expectations to meet in the you know the middle managers and all that kind of stuff, and, and the system engineers and all that kind of stuff. They're not they're not privy to what's really going on at Apple, and so there's a lot of you know whether you're talking to resellers, you're talking to consultants, you're talking to developers. We're all kind of kept in the dark in a certain way, you know, and you just sort of have to you have to roll with it, right? Yeah. But again, to be the the devil's advocate on on Apple side for this one. Uh, we don't know what story GT Advanced told Apple when they made the deal, what how they positioned themselves in terms of their capabilities and their skills, uh, or what they were capable of doing. And maybe Apple found out fairly soon after engaging that they really weren't up to par and mm-hmm. and uh, felt that they had to step in to try to make it work. It's possible. That seems I, I don't likely, know. in fact. Yeah. Uh, that, that feels likely to me. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because it seems clear that GT Advanced, you know, they were a solar cell manufacturing company. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, and they, they came up with this method for producing sapphire that I think Apple got a, a little too excited. And, and when GT sends that excitement, they're like, oh, of course we can do this. You know, they'll say anything to get a deal with Apple because you know what that would mean. Right. right. Um, so I think, I think both parties fooled each other on this one. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, the, all the hens came home to roost and it all came apart. Well, there have been supply issues in the past. I remember when the when the large screen um, LCDs were being manufactured. I think it was maybe the first twenty seven inch IMAX. There was a huge delay uh, from the get go. You know, like you know, Steve Jobs went up and did the announcement on it. Look how wonderful this thing is. And then you know, all of us resellers went out and placed our orders, and we had to wait like six months before we actually saw product hit the street. You know. Just because, because I think you know that the the idea was cool, but again, if you know anything about manufacturing LCDs, you know it, at the time it was very difficult to build a large enough screen to to a large enough piece of glass to actually work, right? So there you go. Alrighty then. Um, what's next? Uh, watch kit. Hello, hello, watch kit. No. Oh, what, t- <laughs> what time is it, Tim? Well, let me look it? at my bare wrist. Oh, there's no thing. watch. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you what are you trying to say there, Aaron? Like, uh, yeah. So well, I, okay. Then this week, um, as some people may not know, believe it or not, um, WatchKit finally did did uh, get released into developers' hands, and Apple rolled out a big press release. I don't think they did anything formal, but they had a big press release, and, and they released some how-to videos to developers, and they also released, you know. I think the new HIG, I guess we can call it, the, the WatchKit human interface guidelines and some design specs and design tools and even some Photoshop templates, if I'm not mistaken, on you know to help people start building apps. And they've, they've called, the call went out to developers this week to start building apps. So are you guys building apps yet? Well, we're building apps every day, aren't we? But not, not for the watch right now. But uh, I think, um, Jaime, you were saying that you were... 
looking at this stuff and spending way too much time. I saw you on Twitter at like four in the morning, <laughs> still tweeting about this stuff. Really? Yeah, uh, it was. Uh, it was. It was a late night. And when he says four in the morning, he doesn't mean his time. It's probably like seven in the morning over there in Toronto. In, in I was Seattle, waking, was I was reading my Twitter feed this morning as I woke up, and oh. and you are tweeting. <laughs> I'm like, what are you still doing awake? <laughs> <laughs> excitement folks it's go to exciting. bed man <laughs> yeah yeah it is exciting stuff you know we've uh, we were expecting this of course but i think we got a lot more than we expected mm-hmm. uh we're, we're looking at not just what we assumed would be a way to do notifications and glances but actual watch kit apps mm-hmm. and of course there comes a giant asterisk beside that uh in that you can't actually run code on the watch but i think what we have is pretty darn close and although people are complaining about it uh i really don't see the downside right now that apple is really respecting the the power limitations of of this wearable device Mm -hmm. and they want to make sure that apps that run on it aren't sucking it dry before the end of the day so i think this makes a lot of sense having just the resources so you've got storyboards and static resources like images stored on the watch but the code runs in an extension in an iOS app. Therefore, of course, you need to have an iOS app on your phone in mm-hmm. order to run with the watch. That applies even to even to watch apps, not the watch extensions, right? Yes, that's right. So, okay. yeah, we're speaking specifically, or I'm speaking specifically of watch apps right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, a watch app is just a a an extension in your iPhone app that runs the executable code, which is then transferred using Bluetooth and Magic. RPC Magic. and and cool words like that. Pixie to, dust. To, yes, Magic Pixie Dust Telepathy. And <laughs> it runs on the watch and it does so seamlessly. The developer doesn't care about that. Right. They they talk back and forth and I think uh, it's a really slick idea. Mm-hmm. And it seem, seems like from what I've been hearing and there have been people that have, have really dove right in with it like uh, Craig Hockenberry, of course, who is mm-hmm. always the first one in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says the experience is actually really great. Well, yeah, I actually did, like I said before in the, in, the, in the podcast earlier, I'm a builder, so I like to build things. So within, you know, probably 30 minutes of having the app kit on my, on my device, I think before you even got back from the coffee shop, I had built an app, you know, basically just a little rudimentary app that had a, you know, a, a label on it and it had a picture of a hat on it and, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. It was it was actually pretty pretty simple. I mean, and I, like I said, I've been been working with iOS eight extensions for the last couple of weeks, so it was very seamless to sort of transition over to this. It's just another target. Way you go, um, and you build it. So I was expecting actually to be able to run a little bit of code on the on the device, but uh, I guess that's not to be right. Well, yeah, but big deal, right? Like you mm. you okay? So you you set up an Xcode project, you create an extension. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually it's created automatically for you when you add a watch app target. Exactly. Yeah. So you create a watch app target and then it, it throws in an extension and the watch app, which is like I said, just the storyboard and the assets. Mm-hmm. And it's really straightforward. You've got an interface controller, which is a subclass of WK interface, con- interface controller. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to have notifications, there's a, there's a, a view controller for that. Mm-hmm. And you can have a glance one as well, if you like. And these are all options that you can set up yourself. Sure. Well, essentially, it's it's an extended, it's an external monitor for the iPhone. Really, it's kind of how the simulator labels it. But but that's kind of sort of what it is. It's just like having uh, a smaller little screen on your wrist that's separated from you know. And people have been doing Bluetooth, you know, external monitors for a long time on Macs and and with iPads and stuff like that. So it's not a you know where where it's not really the device doing the work it's just displaying the results right yeah if you just think yeah. of it as another bluetooth accessory you know iphone mm-hmm. accessory uh really expensive one by the really way. expensive really one expensive. that has cool design and a cool band and and sits on your <laughs> wrist then then it all makes sense yeah it matches your porsche you know yep yeah <laughs> i guess the thing that i i think about when i look at all this stuff in the sdk is because um, glances are going to be really easy to make and notifications are going to be very easy to make mm-hmm I think we're going to see a glut of them. You know, every every look at your iPhone's uh, springboard right now, and every app that's there 
which gets updated on a regular basis, is going to have a watch integration of some kind, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and, and if, so we're if you think, a, if you think push notifications are, are annoying now, getting them all the time, just wait until yeah. they're popping up on your well, watch. Well, I, I was I was saying today, like it's been, <laughs> exactly. it's getting really annoying. Like uh, you know, um, I've got my phone, I've got my iPhone, which is my my iPhone five S, and I've got my six plus, and then I've got my mini, and and I got my Mac running Yosemite now. And every time the phone rings and it's some telemarketer, you know, look at I look at the screen and I don't want to take the call, so I silence my phone. And yet my iPhone six plus is ringing away, and my iPad Mini's ringing away because they all want to answer the call. Hey, you got a call coming in? I mean, and Jaime pointed out to me today, like just wait till you get the the watch happening, doing the same sort of thing, right? So, yeah, it's just that's crazy. It's exactly right. That's that's exactly what's going to happen. All I kept thinking was, where's Scott Forstall when we need him? There's going to be this period of sort of irrational exuberance around. Hmm. putting things on the watch things that don't make sense <laughs> you know yeah. h- how do how are the glances going to scale you know when when you've got 15 apps on your on your device that want a glance mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. you're going to be like swiping your wrist like a madman to get through them all Mm-hmm. So, well, and I was looking too. I was also thinking too about the the what's the extended glance, which is the big long scrolling one, right? I mean, yeah. how how is that going to work with driving down the road and your your watch, you know, all of a sudden wants you to scroll through this thing? All you know, now we have another potential disaster, another potential source of accidents, right? Yeah, I'm waiting for the flashlight app that when you turn your flashlight on, it will pop up a notice on your watch saying your flashlight is on. And then you turn the flashlight off, and it'll say, your flashlight is off. <laughs> That's a you great app idea. <laughs> I'm going to get on that one right away. Yep. There, was, there was a discussion, too, and, and I think it was the guys from Release Notes were talking about the fact that there's no sort of app store going to be for the, the watch, obviously. I think there, there was some sort of expectation there may be another way to market your apps. And now that we've seen the, what's coming in, in 1.0, we're basically just going to have extensions to iPhone apps. So you're still going to have the same inability to make money with the broken app store that we have now right well maybe there will be some other app store that we can look forward to ah that's a joke it's an inside joke long, <laughs> no, is it, long time yeah. listeners of the show anyway um but there's probably some opportunity there's a couple of opportunities here though right because now you can be featured without having to have like a apple design award winning app right just right. because you will be one of the few on day one that's like mm. you know extend your iphone with Apple Watch or whatever it is that they choose for the category. Well, you know, yep. I, I actually have a, a goofy little novel, novelty app that I wrote, you know, one, one weekend for for a specific event. And we, we just, I, you know, I keep updating it just for fun. And, and it's basically a countdown. And the only time I ever use the app is actually on New Year's Eve to count down to midnight, right? And But it's 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 that kind of thing. It just shows it has a little, you know, digital countdown. And that's totally an app for, for a watch kit application, you know? Right. And I think I do think there'll also be a um, sort of a war to be one of the handful of glances that a user actually (laughs) has, because like it's worth pointing out that it's the glances view on the watch is pretty much like the today view on the phone and how the widgets work, where things are not automatically installed there. A user has to elect to put them there and to keep them there. Right. Yeah, like the Today screen. I, I've been playing around with that the last couple of weeks and just sort of looking to see, you know, every now and then I go in and, and you know, after doing some updates, there's there's something else I can put in my Today screen and have a look at. And you're right, there's there's like probably, I've probably got 10 or 15 on there right now, and, and some don't make sense. And it's worth pointing out that um, at least this Verge article makes note of the fact that there's a footnote from the press release mm-hmm. where it says, starting later next year, developers will be able to create fully native apps for Apple Watch. Oh, right. That's what I was getting at, right? Yeah. So this is a, a, I mean, it's a beta drop for sure, but it might even be considered like an alpha drop because it doesn't have everything that we're going to be able to do. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's possible at that point that there will be a watch app store? (laughs) That seems possible, right? Because there are some weird limitations, like as great as it is for battery life as as an architecture and kind of how things make sense where you're largely running this extension on the phone that does all the heavy processing and um it's almost like screen sharing to the watch um mm-hmm. there are some weird quirks like the way that animations work which is mm-hmm. to say that animations do not work at all and the way right. that they are faked is by having you know animated gifs <laughs> yeah you have yeah. image slices that are just played in a, in a rotation sort of like uh, the way ui image view lets you do that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like a flip book yeah 
I'm a little disappointed by the uh, the approach to layout where it's just a it starts at the top and kind of lists going down that instead of being able to position anywhere on the screen that that feels a lot like you know QTE or Android. It's very very to similar me. to Android in that in that sense. Yeah. In, in fact, the, the whole idea of of laying things out vertically or horizontally, you know, and you, you know that's exactly what Android's uh, layout mechanisms are. Right. It's a little bit weird in the storyboard because you can you can see that they added these new grouping elements and, mm-hmm. and tables work in a particular way. Um, and it, it, it's sort of strange because those seem very like just fill in this template and then it still mm-hmm. sort of makes use of auto layout like for, you know, the size of a label and whatnot that's still kind of strange as a mixture there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I did find it odd. Like, you know, immediately, like I said, coming from a design background, first thing I did when I put a label on the screen is I wanted to center the text, and I couldn't. It just kept pushing over to the right, to the left-hand side, you know. Uh, I could center the images and stuff like that, but I, but uh, and actually now I'm looking at a screenshot to see that they've got centered text. Now I'm wondering how they did that. Hmm. Well, there's an alignment uh, property <laughs> on the label. No, I know. That's what I mean. Like, so I went into, I went into the, I created a label view and I stretched it out to the width of the device, right? And I said, center the text and it still went over to the right. Oh, I'm, I'm looking at a centered label on mine. Are you? Well, there you go. So yeah. Anyway, I, like I said, I was keener. I was a keener right out of the box kind of guy. So who knows? The gestures are also kind of interesting. So we had talked to, I can't remember how many episodes ago, but we talked about, you know, will there be a distinction between you know, the force touch and a long press. And it turns out there is no distinction because there's no such thing as a long press. Well, that's what, yeah, Mark raised mm. that last week, actually, as a matter of fact. Yeah. So, hmm. There, really, there's no such thing as a long press at all? That's long, my understanding touch. from, from well, looking at it. Yeah, I haven't, um, I haven't looked at it yet. Yeah, so you, you can, do, you know, you can do vertical swiping up and down, like, on a table list. Um, you can do horizontal swipes between pages if you do a... Um, a left edge it's kind of like an iphone where you go back in navigation mm-hmm. and of course you can swipe up from the bottom to bring in the glances and tapping on items indicate selection but there's no uh custom gestures as far as i can tell like oh if you do a curly cue or even just simple long press it does not seem to be in the drop that we have hmm. well like always we wonder you know how much was originally supposed to be in this in this uh, version of the SDK versus how much actually made it in there. And maybe more stuff is coming in six months. Who knows? I'm well, sure there, there is. There's got to yeah. be. Yeah. And there was also the the, uh, the discussion about, I think we we, cut, we were wondering whether or not it was going to be strictly Swift or Objective-C. And it seems to be, I mean, it's available in both, obviously. So you can you can do both uh, both languages. But uh, And that makes perfect sense, of course, because the code is actually running on your iPhone. <laughs> So. Oh, that's true. Yeah, and 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 the thing about it is, is that the, the I think, but the, the comment that I heard yesterday was all the examples are done under Objective C. But and again, the point was made that perhaps it's because the guys who did the watch kit had the same amount of time to look at Swift that we all did. In that, you know, it was all released on June and June first week of June, and that's it, right? Yeah, well, and, and they were actually... busy building a watch. <laughs> that's true. that's true. Apple did release a sample app, uh, Lister. For Apple yeah. Watch, um, and it's an iOS and OS 10 app, um, and it's written in Objective C and Swift. Now, were you able to? Did you play around with that yesterday, Aaron, at all? Or I've I've seen this app before, and uh, I haven't seen the update. Uh, this this Lister app was used in a WWDC presentation. Oh yeah, right, right. Um, I did, I actually this... played around with it uh, uh, this last night, and and um, it's an interesting way that they structured the, the actual the way the app is. Uh, you know, way the I forget what it's called. The properties are set up on the in the applications themselves, but and once I got through that, it was okay. But I couldn't actually get anything to display on the watch simulator. But I, yeah. I did, you know, even though I was able to build apps in the afternoon. But just really the, strange. The purpose of Lister is to demonstrate uh, extensions in iOS, um, yeah. and that's like when the WWC talk uh, about uh, extensions was out. This was the app that they used. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. so this is why I was looking at it because I'm using extensions quite heavily in my current app that I'm building myself. Right. Right. Cool. You know what's interesting when I look at the the WatchKit architecture and, and how apps work for it, I can kind of see now why Apple made its temporary decision vis-a-vis pCalc. So for folks who don't recall, 
we talked a few episodes ago about mm-hmm. pcalc getting a, a nasty gram from apple saying hey um doing calculation in a today view widget is verboten you should not do that and right. everybody rightfully wonders like well why did you give us an api that lets us do all sorts of wonderful things if you really want more or less a static image to be displayed is what you're implying mm-hmm. and apple sort of rethought it and, and backed away from its previous position but when you look at what the watch does and how it works with extensions that that's pretty much it right you don't do calculation on the watch the watch essentially is like a, a series of static images and and just touchscreen fields that you're dealing with so somebody asked me on or asked generically on twitter like well what if i wanted to show um like a chart of some sort maybe maybe stocks or performance stats and They'd said, well, would I have to generate an image and then push that to the watch? And my take is, yeah, like the, the watch won't do that calculation. I think that's the way the design is intended to be. Quite mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And and there's it's seamless, though. That's the whole point, right? Like in the background, you've got your extension doing that work, but you're displaying it on the watch. As a developer, you shouldn't have to care about that like, in, unless I'm missing something. But, you know, we've been hearing this all day from the critics, if you will call them that. Uh, I like to think of them as page view whores but (laughs) for those people they're like listen you know this is obviously a a stunted uh, uh, product because it's not running code on the device Uh, we were looking at an article today but these are the same people who would be complaining that they have to recharge their watch every 45 minutes because they're they're trying to run all these advanced broken uh, apps on their phone right yeah so they won't they won't be happy no matter what so let's let's look at this article that I just pasted into Skype. Yep. This is um, uh, so Business Insider. Oh, your these guys, I love these guys. All Who's they not? do is produce quality content that people want to read. Really? Headline is, a developer told us about a major flaw with the Apple Watch. A developer. Well, the developer is kind of a doof from what I can tell. Mm-hmm. So the, the criticism is that the watch and the phone are constantly talking. The code actually sits on your phone. Only the UI elements are on the watch. As like as if it's self evident that that's bad somehow, right? Well, and, uh, and, and notwithstanding the fact that they're they're also thinking about the the apps that we developers are allowed to create. I mean, we don't know that. I mean, there's obviously going to be apps that are specifically running in native code on the device that Apple's going to bring to the table. Right? Yes, that's coming. We've already been yeah. told that. But well, no, I mean, I mean even being able to tell time, right? The, the criticism here is that the phone is doing all the heavy lifting. So a, you need a phone, but we mm-hmm. already knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the developer, the source for this article, says that this will present dev problems. This can be overcome, but sharing app state and data will be tricky. Uh, yeah, why? Why do you say yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. What, what, yep. How do you even? Where do you come up with that? That's like saying I have to have a TV to run my Apple TV. Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> makes you wonder if the developer he's talking to is his, you know, twelve-year-old nephew. Not to knock twelve-year-old developers, but. Um, you know, it doesn't someone sound who like doesn't he's... have a lot of perspective. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. you know, we're we're being told very specifically that the communication between your extension and the the device, the the watch, is all in the background. It happens invisibly. You don't worry about it. Pixie dust it happens with pixie dust. Exactly. But it, it from what I've been hearing, it works. Yeah. That's you know, it's I worth <laughs> it's worth noting that. You know, every time there's like a study, like four out of five dentists think you should brush your teeth. Like they always find one dentist who's just right. a whack job. Exactly. <laughs> well, and Jaime, you, you, I just want to interject here that Jaime, you mentioned yesterday that we should have a moment of silence for Nokia. Did they actually announce something yesterday? Wow, <laughs> they, they did. So, uh, so first, as an aside, like for. All you marketing folks out there, like you probably should not announce things on the same day that Apple announces anything, because like it or not, the news, the uh, aforementioned uh, page view people, like they they love Apple stuff, and that's all they will pay attention to. Right. Mm. Uh, but yes, Nokia did announce a tablet that looks an awful lot like an iPad Mini. My understanding Early. is they they quote unquote participated in the design for that thing, but it kind of seems more like they lent their name, uh, branding name to an existing, oh, I like, uh, I assume it's a Chinese knockoff. I don't know for sure. 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 It's Foxconn. That's what ah. I'm hearing. Oh, there you go. Yep. There you go. Oh, really? Yeah. Foxconn is making the thing and they've, they've licensed Nokia's brand name 
for. But isn't Foxconn producing stuff for Apple? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. yeah. Just oh, checking. We've been we've known for some time that Foxconn was going to get into this game. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Samsung. Who? <laughs> well, Foxconn is different. Foxconn's just a you know general purpose. Um, you know, you give us a design and we'll build it kind of place. Uh, I, I don't. I don't see them in the same league as Samsung, where they're you know a vertical kind of company. That's no, I didn't mean. I meant, I meant from the point of view that Samsung originally built the or helped build a lot of the original iPhone one, you know, and and subsequent models after that until Apple came up with their own chips and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Again, that's but that's a different division of Samsung, which is a you know an enormous company, uh, right. totally different division from the the division that's actually building that's the, the Android evil stuff. division, I guess. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Every company has to have an evil <laughs> silo where they put the bad apples. Yes, nervous Part, laugh and then pardon yes. The pun. <laughs> All right, that's. I think we've covered that one off pretty good. Yeah. So watch dead. Watch kid is dead for now. I'm sure we'll have some follow up. Oh that. yeah, and Apple of course is toast. Yeah, exactly. As a direct result. Uh, I look forward to Apple's death. Yeah. Let's Apple's do picks. Well, we could do picks. Um, so, yeah, so we'll wrap up again this week, and we'll do it the same way as we do every week, and we'll go around the table and see if anybody has any picks. Aaron, do you have any picks? I do. Um, okay. I was pointed to this service by uh, one of my Twitter followees, Tim Burks. Mm-hmm. He pointed out a site called Atlantic.net. They are a cloud hosting provider. And mm-hmm. what makes them interesting is their... Uh, service offering a 99 cent per month uh, cloud server so for a buck a month you can have uh, a linux box with full root access an ssd drive and one terabyte of data transfer per month it's a very lightweight box but for anyone one terabyte's a lot of of transfer yeah that's fine sure um it's good but uh it's like 256 megs of ram 10 gigs of hard drive storage hmm. and, you know, a virtual CPU unit, whatever the hell that means. Mm-hmm. But for, oh gosh, just anything that you might have in mind. And like, I think about and building a web service for an iPhone app, for example, mm-hmm. uh, having a, a really dirt, dirt cheap server on the internet that is hosted at a, a proper hosting company. Uh, is is a terrific boon, and having these prices go down so so deeply, mm-hmm. very very interesting times that we're living in right now. So, um, Atlantic.net, buck a month server, and uh, you know I just I couldn't say why you wouldn't get it. Just no, to, just so phenomenal. is it I mean, uh, is it running virtual machines sort of like AWS does or yes, how, how does yes. it work? Okay. Yeah, it's it's all virtual. That's that's the only reason we we can see these things. You know, we've seen uh, from DigitalOcean. Uh, with their $5 a month server, that was a big breakthrough. Um, and then Linode matched their price for very similar configurations, 5 bucks a month. Um, but now going down to 1 buck a month. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. Wow. So yeah, it's crazy, yeah. I, I have no reason at all to pick up a server like this, but I did it anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> you just never know. What the hell? Let's play around. You know, I'm SSHing into the box and installing some tools and you know getting a web server going and what flavor uh, of linux uh, linux is it do you know is it uh you have your choice uh ubuntu 12 or 14 mm-hmm. long-term support versions yeah uh you can also i think there is another flavor maybe fedora or centos uh yeah it might be centos um I'm going to see if I can get you that. Information. Well, I can tell. I can tell you right now. Like, I mean, I as you as you may or may not know, I have some Rackspace servers, and I mean, they're like thirty-two cents an hour for a server. So when you're talking yeah. like ninety-nine cents a month, yeah, yeah, or some, something equivalent as as a starter server on on a Rackspace, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, okay. And just how, to how does that. the uh, price and scale with usage? Does it go up? You know, is, is the is it basically the equivalent of you know you get a, a little bit of free stuff and then. You hit a you hit a, a a big hockey stick up as soon as you hit a, reach a certain amount of usage, or or is it still well, pretty reasonable if you if you scale it up? So it's it's limited by capacity. Okay, so like you've got your your only sort of thing that's going to drive the cost up is the bandwidth, right? If right. you if you surpass the one terabyte bandwidth per month, that's when they start charging you more. Um, I don't actually have that number on me 
here. Yeah, but I'm just I've, looking it up right now. You know, actually, one terabyte is pretty standard for cloud hosting providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just one of those numbers that you just see everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't think that's a big limiting factor. Performance is obviously the big limiting factor. Um, having yeah, said that, more RAM and, and you know, yeah, you need like 256 CPU. megs of RAM is pretty small. Yeah. One mm-hmm. CPU is pretty small. 10 gigs of space isn't that great. But oh. for for a single developer producing an application or a single person who just wants some kind of cloud instance out there uh, for whatever application, like a proxy server, um, you know, some kind of workload server that does just about anything, you know. For one person, you know, so is it literally a dollar a month? Like you, yeah, ninety nine cents. cents, That's all you're in for right now. That's correct. Ninety nine cents. Um, And let me, uh, you asked about data centers in Toronto, Canada. Uh, Mine's in their USA East. Dallas, yeah, maybe. Um, And there is a Canada East. I didn't even see that. Hmm. Anyway, uh, they run Ubuntu twelve and fourteen. They run Debian seven point three, CentOS six point five, Fedora twenty. FreeBSD 10, and also two brands of Windows Server. Hmm. If you if you bend that way, mm-hmm. and if you do, shame on you. They should give you your money back for that case. They really ought to. They ought to. They ought to like pay you a buck a month. <laughs> anyway, um, so how about, of course, how about have, OS 10 Server? Do they have that? No, nah, if only. Eh? That yeah, was something. you could oh set up God. your continuous integration using Xcode and all that. Oh, that's true. That's yeah, true. yeah, yeah. That'd be something. I don't know yeah. anybody who does that except for like Mac Mini Colo. Yeah, there's, there's actually this one downtown actually in Toronto, like a cloud server type. Uh, yeah, I, think, I can't remember what it was, um, but it, but it runs on minis. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I would be mm-hmm. curious to know about I'll, that. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes. Maybe so you will look for it in the show notes. Anyway, very interesting service. If you're if you're a developer and who isn't listening to this show, uh, having having a cloud server somewhere uh, is is a great thing to have for for you know hitting your app with. And this is the cheapest one I've ever seen. Oh, I found some uh, numbers for you there, Mark. Um, so initial one, the Go Go server they call it, ninety nine cents. Uh, small one uh, goes to four ninety seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the next step up for half yeah. a gig of RAM. And then you're getting to then you're getting to like you know ten bucks mm-hmm. a month, and then and then there's hour. Then they get into the hourly prices, but their prices are still half of what what a, a rack space charges yeah. for this. Yeah. And then um, you know medium, and all the way up to what they call extra large, which is uh, by the oh, it's one hundred fifty nine dollars a month, which is kind of but but still it, it kicks ass in terms of what you get in terms of disk space, uh, throughput and yep. CPUs and all that kind of stuff compared to like you know uh, like a ver- uh, cloud ser- cloud servers or cloud sites at Rackspace, um, and it has load balancers and stuff, and it's scalable for uh, you know as you need to go to more servers. Uh, you know, I don't know. Don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds pretty awesome. It's worth exploring. <clears throat> well, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of a you know, here we are complaining about people not wanting to pay two dollars for an app, and we're talking about a ninety nine cent right. server. <laughs> <sighs> I can't believe they want to charge four dollars for the next level up. You know, anyway. <laughs> it's uh, two cents per gigabyte data transfer out uh, above the one terabyte. Hmm. Oh, sure once once you about, once you last past that, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I can't speak to them, of course. You know, one reason Rackspace is, is much more expensive is they have really amazing support. And oh, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Literally, they call it phenomenal support, and it is phenomenal. I, I have no, I mean, I, I have two servers in the basement that I ran for years on a, on a proper rack out, out in the wild there. Um, and, you know, and I have the logic board replacement kit and, you know, the redundant fans. And I was always like, you know, biting my nails. When is the server going to go down kind of thing? Yet once I once I moved everything off to virtual co-located over at Rackspace, I needed the, the bandwidth and the scalability and stuff like that. You know, now I sleep at night. I don't even think about it. You know. Yeah. So be that as it may, uh, I don't know what kind of support you're getting from Atlantic.net, right. but you know, I, I'm bringing this to you as you know, you want a very inexpensive server to, to use as, for as a stuff. server dude, which I am. I mean, this is this is a, it's a phenomenal price point, and it feels and I, like a game changer. I, well, I see. I wouldn't I wouldn't go into it like like had that said, being a server dude, I wouldn't go into it without you know proper backup and all that kind of other stuff too, unless it was like you know something to serve my watch app, like you said. You know, it's just a little little dinky thing to play around with. Uh, how many do you have any picks? I do. Uh, my pick of the week is the. Recent update to the Target app for iOS. Um, bit of disclosure: the technology I'm about to talk about is created by Point Inside. They're a Bellevue-based company that does indoor location services and, and mapping and whatnot. 
and I used to work for them in a past life. Um, but be that as it may, all, all sorts of disclosures there. Uh, this is great stuff. So some of the technology here is stuff that I worked on and some things that the app does, I suspect is stuff that I worked on. So I'm, I'm feeling like a proud papa in this case. <laughs> um, so the basic idea is if you wanted to find, you know, a jar of spicy you know, red pepper pasta, and you can go into the app and then do your typical, you know, finding a product sort of thing. But what's cool is you can also look like I'm looking at this, this jar of spicy red pepper pasta sauce. And I can see that it's available at a store that's right near me. And so if I, if I tap on that availability, boom, I can see a map that shows the floor layout. It shows me precisely where that item is and not just, wow. you know, like what aisle it's at, but like where it is in the aisle. So I'm not just kind of left wondering where in the world is this thing. And the other cool thing is you can already create like this shopping list to say, okay, well, uh, I need some shampoo. I need some conditioner. What's cool is if I go to the actual store's location, that shopping list will change to not just be a generic, okay, well, great. Somewhere in Target's vast supply of, of things, we've got this thing available. Now it's like, no, no, no. This thing is here in this store and just tap on these little icons and we'll show you precisely where that is in the store. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. It's really nifty stuff. The, the, trust me, folks, doing uh, geofencing <laughs> at scale is very difficult. Like I could take this and, and walk into the, you know, the local Seattle city target, or I could take this same list and walk into one in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it will do all sorts of nifty, cool things. Hmm. So that's my that's, pick. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I know. I know from working with the other the competitor of Target that they do have large data farms with all kinds of information. You know, they can raise the price of socks in Winnipeg at a moment's notice. Um, but uh, yeah, that that is kind of cool that they've 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 able to pinpoint it right down to that level of uh, because we know they have that same sort of technology on their shipping side with you know with distributing product around around. Uh, North America, you know, um, they know where every box and a lot of kind of stuff is through all the RFID technologies that they've introduced and stuff. This is just sort of the next level. It's kind of cool. And I can tell you that, you know, the acid test is going to be when I release this to my wife and she's going to be able to search for stuff because she's the biggest critic about being able to find stuff on the internet, you know. Anyway, that's cool. Um, well, mine, mine is a, mine is a twofold piece. I was actually going to bring this up as a as a topic for conversation, but I'm going to make it my pick this week, and that is Monument Valley, the app that won uh, the, the one of the apples uh, apps that won the Apple Design Award this year at WWDC uh, for a phenomenal little puzzle game, puzzle app um, has just released new levels, and and you know it's it. It was. An, it wasn't a cheap app. It was like four dollars when we first bought it. Well, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Let me let me rephrase that. Please it was, do. It was a moderately priced app at four. No. Okay. It's a, it was the cheap app at four dollars. Phenomenally priced app at four dollars. Let me let me let me rephrase this because the point about it is is that first of all, it is a work of art. If you if you have not seen this app, you know, do yourself a favor, go look at the video, find a friend who's got it installed on their device. If you don't want to, if you don't want to pony up, and I think you should. This app is is a phenomenal app. I mean, and it, it's cool because it plays around with perspective, plays around, twists things. It got components of Escher, and and now I've forgotten all the guys that they talked about uh, who are who are involved in it. But you know, all these sort of you know twisty sort of isometric graphics, and you have this little girl named Ida that you have to puzzle around this uh, this thing. And so the big story from the thing that pointed out to me was so I was yes one. I was really glad that they had come out with with new levels but what really got my back up and it in, in keeping with some sort of follow-up from our conversations about apps what people and this what Aaron's giving me a hard time about right now is about apps and and how they're priced and how they're perceived in the marketplace is as soon as it launched people were starting to give it one star reviews because they wanted two dollars for their update right and we've talked about this on the show before that there's no proper way to do app, app updates there's no proper way to do um, you know, to, to really value a good piece of piece of work. And this app, believe me, is a phenomenal piece of work. And um, at $2, you know, that's nothing. So immediately I jumped onto the app store, paid my $2, wrote my review and said, you know, this is a beautiful app. And I think that they're, they're undercharging even for the update. Like it's worth, you know, people and people have said that in some of the reviews I read today, 
people would would be willing to pay more for such a such a wonderful work as this you know and it's and it's a pleasure to play it's really calming and you know it's fun and and it you know kind of it, it clearly won the the award for from apple's perspective because of the whole surprise and delight thing that apple's going on about all the time right um so that that's a couple of things that that brought up was was this whole app store debate um, there was an interesting video I found, and I'll put, I'll put a link to it on the show notes. The people who invented the app, um, I think it's called Us2 Software, out of, they're out of Europe somewhere, but they did a talk uh, about six months ago, or maybe at, before they won the award, actually, on how they built this app in Unity, right? And they taught, you know, building the 3D world and how to, how when you twist the, the levels around, and you'll see what I mean if you watch the video or play it, you know there are certain points when you when you twist around the the the, the world you're playing in, um, you know the the connections are made and the little girl is able to cross chasms that she would no longer you know, you know that were un, un, unpassable, in a sort of Escher like way if you know MC, the work of M C Escher at all. So yeah, so if you're really curious about how an app like this is built, they actually came and disclosed how they they built the app and where they put the node points and how they calculated when the nodes would be crossable and when they wouldn't. It's really kind of a cool video. It's about 40 minutes long. I totally, highly, highly, highly recommend Monument Valley 1 as an app and, and definitely the, the new levels. If you've played the app and you think that you're at the end of the end of the game here, I mean, rather than re- releasing a Monument Valley 2, at least they've actually been able to put, this, put this, these new levels back in. And it is such a delightful game that, trust me, if you play the game and you finish it, they allow you to go back and reset the game to, to the beginning, and you can go back and play it again. And, it, and it's not like reading a book where you know how it ends. It's, it's, it's really sort of a twisty little puzzle, and it delights kids, it delights adults, it delights everybody. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful app. You know, it is a little weird that psychologically people felt that a $2 update to mm-hmm. to an app uh, with a significant number of levels. It wasn't like they just added the tiny amount of thing. I think they doubled the size of the game, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it went from 10 Quite. to added, added yeah. eight more levels to an app that had 10 in the first place. Yeah. Okay. So they they almost yeah. doubled. It's, it's close enough, right? Yeah. It, it wasn't one level. Um, it's significant amount of work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and yet, if they had released that as Monument Valley 2, or even 1.5 or something, people probably wouldn't have been, you know, they wouldn't have had as much heartache about it, I think. Right, right. I mean, look at, uh, so coming up this weekend is uh, The Hunger Games, the, what, third <laughs> third episode in the series. And uh, nobody's complaining that they have to put down I'm their money again about, for movie I'm tickets. I'm complaining about the fact that they broke the last episode into two pieces. But that's a different complaint. That's different oh, than, hey, right. <laughs> um, I already paid for Hunger Games. That means Hunger Games 2, 3, and now 4. Yeah. You know, I should just get those for free. It's like, well, nobody really thinks that for other that's kinds true. of yeah. And, and you'll probably spend more than two hours playing the game as opposed to the two hours you see watching the movie, yet you pay a lot more for the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, and then there's a whole sort of, as I said before, there's the whole sort of, uh, uh, you know, entertainment fact that you can basically share this app with your kids or your friends because, hey, check yeah. out this cool app. And you hand them your device and they're just blown away. And it's a universal app. I mean, it's not like it's stuck on iPad or iPhone and it it's the same experience either way, right? So yeah. Better well, on the iPad. You know, definitely better on the iPad. I agree there. I'm looking at the ratings right now and it looks like there's, as of right this minute, there's a total of 1,990 ratings. I'm on the U.S. store. Mm-hmm. And out of those, 1,758 are five stars and 91 are one stars. And most of those one stars are complaining about the, the this issue. But, mm-hmm. I, but you know, that's a 20 to one ratio. That just leads me to believe that some people are going to complain about anything. Well, I think what happened, it was a backlash, right? Like the people that complained were 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 there quite a bit. And then... Once the news got out, people like Tim went in and made a positive review to Immediately. swing it back. Yes. Did not pass go. And I, and I was surprised to see that, you know, before preparing for the story. I mean, this this came out like uh, last week sometime. And, and, and in preparing for the show today, I went back, or yesterday, I actually went and looked at, to see how they were doing, you know, like I do. I went and looked at swing copters, too. We won't discuss them. Mm. But, uh, but <laughs> or maybe we will. But Whatever <laughs> happened with them? <laughs> they have a thousand... You know, five star ratings. It's ridiculous. Mm. But there wow. you go. Anyway, so but 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 about Monterey Value, I was actually delighted to see. Like I, I went to see if I could find my because when I when I went in to review it, of course I I'm stuck reviewing on the Canadian store, and you guys won't see anything that we do, right? But it was all in the American store that seemed to be the bad ratings. 
because uh, there weren't that many. I think there was maybe one on the Canadian store when I went to put my I actually put my review in, and now I'm buried. I'm like you know a snowflake in a snowstorm uh, of people who've who've turned around and given it a five star rating simply because they heard about this this uh, as you say backlash to the to the negative reviews, right? Mm. So. But again, the negative reviews, it's surprising though, again, the way people think, like you said, that negative reviews are a story, you know, that that negative reviews will get people's backs up and get them jumping in there, you know, so. It's good. It's a, it's a, it's a correction for the culture, really. Yeah, no, I, well, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But, it, but I mean, it, it, ha- it takes, you know, it takes a little bit of mudslinging to get people's attention, right? Anyway, that's that's sort of what I'm going on about, I guess. So the, well, it's a the wrong real story that's been made right. Yeah, the real story here is that the App Store rating and review process is completely broken, and that's not yes. really the story at this point. <laughs> well, we've yeah. known that for a long time. But it may be to new listeners who just turned tuned in today to make Maybe. that point. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You never know. Yeah, never know. Alrighty then. So uh, I guess that will wrap it up for the week. And so once again, how can people find you, Aaron? At Aaron Bay on Twitter. Okay. And Jaime, where can people find you? At Dev with a Hair and devwithahair.com. And Mark, where can people find you? Mark R at smapsoft.com. And I'm, my name is Tim Mitra. I'm here in Toronto. And I can be found at it-guy.com and uh, Tim Mitra on Twitter. And once again, you know, uh, we, you know, there's a little cap, uh, end note at the end here. If you like our show, please, you know, rate us. Um, uh, by the way, there's there's a, a survey on on our website, which is uh, www.mtjc.fm. Um, there's a survey there that if you could fill it out, that'd be great because uh, the people that are um, doing stats for us would like to know some demographics about our people who are listening to our show. And if, so once again, we'll say goodbye until next week. Happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Bye. 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 If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find show notes and a summary of each episode. We list links to items that we talk about and links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave us a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also retweet our tweets about the show. Once again, our the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. And uh, that's it. Thanks a lot. Okay, so so no, hang on a second. Since this is a democracy, um, Aaron has posted a new song that he would like to incorporate as our theme song. I don't mind having different theme songs that we we root around on. I happen to like the the jazz space jazz track that I that I you know picked out and bought and stuff. Uh, can, but, can you can you play it for us? Uh, I don't remember it. Yeah, I'm gonna unplug my headphones and so you. Which one? You talking about space jazz? Or you talking about the, the well, one, the one the, the existing. One? Oh yeah, cr- sure. Cr- yeah. You don't remember it? Don't you ever listen to our podcast? I listen to it every week. I oh. don't remember it. Oh really? Okay. That doesn't ring any bells. Hang on, I'm at all. I'm finding it. Hang on. I'm on a Mac. Things you can't find things on a Mac anymore. Space Jam. <clears throat> and I can play that. Can play the tune that that Aaron picked out as well. So I'm gonna totally like just bring it up in my own Overcast here, and I'll just play it. Jeez, you're so slow. God, you're so slow. Oh Jesus. Jesus. Everybody's a critic, especially Aaron. Uh, no, I, could download it. I could probably download. Hang it on, I've got playing. it right here. Just give me a second. <laughs> oh wait, I'm anywhere. This is in podcast folder. Duh. I was trying to, trying to find the original track to what it was. Okay, Space Jazz. Where are you? There you are. Here, Space Jazz. It's called. I, I I see I beat you. I totally beat you. Is that what you call this space jazz? Yeah, I didn't call it this. What the authors called it. Can you hear that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I just I totally played it.
Anyway, so let me pause that. So, so guys, okay. the other two guys. This, yeah. This is what Aaron has proposed. Which I, I, I'm not opposed. Like I said, having who's making the crunchy noises. I think that might have been me. <laughs> Mark, it's you. I didn't know it. You should, you, you should have brought potato chips to the rest of the crew, the rest of the class. Get anyway. potato chips. Okay, here we go. Listen. Or pretzels. <laughs> I might take a middle piece of it, not this beginning part. The good part's coming up. Here it is. Hang on. Anyway, I think reason reason why Aaron picked it is because it sounds like the. Um... It doesn't sound like it. It's it's actually a remix of the iPhone ringtone. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like Yoshida Brothers, though. Who? Uh, who's a what's it now? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. He's never heard of them. <laughs> 